Let us pray. Abba Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that you will speak to us. May your word encourage us, may your word challenge us and edify us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts here be pleasing and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me begin by asking us a question. What is discipleship? The word discipleship is not just a word that is confined to our Christian world or our Christian understanding. It is not only Christians who talk about, dis about being a disciple. Rather, the word disciple is also used elsewhere. For instance, we hear the word disciple used, for example, in the business world or in the fashion world or even in the education system or in the sports area, you know, it's, it's, like some, it's like having a sifu and a student, right? Sifu and a student, right? So it's a teacher, disciple, right? And in these cases, being a disciple simply means, you know, in these cases, it simply means you, you're just following the ideas or, or their teachings or their methods uh, for the purpose of uh, acquiring knowledge, so the Oxford Dictionary also gives this idea. It says a disciple is one who takes another as teacher or a model to follow after. But when Jesus spoke about discipleship, he meant so much more than just taking him to be a teacher. See, in today's passage, we meet a man who encounters Jesus. And you look at the way he addresses Jesus. He addresses him as a good teacher. Mark 10, 17 says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we see here, he, he calls Jesus good teacher. But he's about to learn that to follow Jesus is more than just calling him a teacher. And of course, Jesus says to him, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So discipleship, my dear friends, discipleship in our context is actually a call. It is a call given by Jesus. And you may ask, a call to what? It is a call to follow and to be with Jesus. It is a call to be in a relationship with Jesus. You see, when Jesus first called his disciples, you know, the first disciples, he called them to be with them, with him. In John, in the gospel, in John, John chapter 1, verses 35 onwards, we see the disciples, you know, the disciples of John following Jesus. You know, because you were you will see in that story, you know, when John saw Jesus, he would say, Hey, look, the Lamb of God. And when John's disciples heard that, instead of following John, they started following Jesus. And Jesus, when he saw them following him, he asked them, what do you want? What do you want? 
And the question that they ask is, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where are you staying? And Jesus replied, come and you will see. You see, Jesus doesn't give the information. I'm staying in Bayan La Paz, for example. Right? Jesus calls them to come and to see and to experience See, friends, discipleship is not about information. It is about experiencing life with Jesus. And you read in the text you know, the Jesus, uh, that the disciples did go. They went and saw where Jesus was staying, and they spent that day with him. Discipleship is always a call to follow and to be with Jesus. You know, there's this guy by the name of Edmund Chun. Uh, Edmund Chun, actually, I think, some, I think some of you may have heard of him. He's from Singapore. Edmund Chun actually wrote a little book titled Mentoring Paradigms, right? It is a book which, uh, it is a, it's a very small book which consists of uh, reflections on mentoring, leadership, and discipleship, right? And in that book, Edmund Chun defines discipleship like this, like this. You all can see, right? Like this. It says, he says, discipleship is a passionate following after Jesus. It's not just follow, huh? it's passionate following after Jesus. It's not merely a training course to take in church, rather it is a life to be lived. And it involves the faithful living out, living out of the implications of the gospel in our lives. It is being transformed by the Holy Spirit to live out the redemptive purpose of the kingdom of God in all arenas of our lives. Okay, there's a lot of words there, right? But the key word here is passionately following after Jesus. And it is indeed a life to be lived. And so, friends, you will see, you know, there is, there is this difference, you know, there's this difference between being a disciple of a business enterprise or following after a, a teacher or a sifu, you know, is different from compared to being a disciple of Jesus. The difference is, the difference is, the sifus outside, you follow them, you just follow their ideas, you just learn the trade, but you do not necessarily have to have a relationship with them. Like for example, if you ask Lee Chong Wei to be your coach to play badminton, I don't think we need to have a relationship with Lee Chong Wei. Do you think so? No. But with Jesus, when we become a disciple of Jesus, we need to be in a relationship with Jesus. That is the heart of Christian discipleship. It is not just following the teachings. It is not just keeping a set of rules like this man in our, our text did or just practicing particular techniques. Christian discipleship is walking through life with a dear friend, Jesus. And so in today's passage, we will learn one thing that we need to be able to do in order to walk through life with a dear friend. And what is that? You can remember the title. The one thing that we need to be able to do is that we need to be able to surrender. 
Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, we meet a man, like I mentioned earlier, who comes to Jesus with much eagerness because the text tells us that he ran to Jesus. He didn't just walk to Jesus, he ran to Jesus. He runs to Jesus with this theological question in his mind. And the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what actually is this man asking Jesus? What is eternal life? Eternal life, if I were to put it in a simple manner, a simple manner, is having an everlasting and unbroken communion with God. That's, in a simple manner, what eternal life is. And we all know, in order to have an unbroken communion with God, it has to come through Jesus. Only Jesus is able to make that possible for us to have this unbroken communion with him. So what this man is essentially asking Jesus is, Jesus, what must I do in order to be in communion with God? Jesus, what must I do in order to be with God? It is a question of discipleship. It is a question of being with God. And Jesus says to him, hey, look, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And the man's response is, oh, all this I have been doing since I was a boy. You know, my dear friends, you know, as I imagine this scene, you, know, you just imagine this scene, you know, I see and I sense, you know, there's just so much restlessness in this man. You know, he says to Jesus, you know, all this I have kept since I was a boy. He has been, in a sense, obeying all these commandments of God, and yet, and yet he still struggles with this hard question of what must he do to inherit eternal life. This guy here, although he has been faithfully observing the laws, that are required of him, but he failed to surrender his life to Jesus. You see, friends, a life that is not fully surrendered to God is restless. A life that is not fully surrendered to God is restless. And today I would like to share with all of us three things, at least three things based on this passage, what it means what it means to fully surrender our lives to God. The first is, a fully surrendered life is more than just fulfilling the law morally. It also includes following the law giver. A fully surrendered life is more than just fulfilling the law morally. It also includes following the law giver. And if you just come back to this verse, Jesus says to the men, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. The man replies, all this I have kept since I was a boy. 
You know, my dear friends, I think, uh, I think it is very hard to find a person who is so committed like this man. The commitment that this man has towards the law is exemplary. He is a man who had great commitment, but, you, but we see that he has yet to surrender his life to God. And we, and we see God in his mercy and in his love and in his grace. He, we don't see him dismissing that commitment. In fact, he says Jesus looked at him and loved him. No sense of condemnation, you know. No. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you like, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. It's like he got a heart attack because then this man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus is not dismissing the commitment. This man is indeed committed. But when Jesus calls him to come and follow him, he was not able to because the reason given here is that he had great wealth. You see, many of us tend to focus on the word go sell everything. Go sell your heart also stop for a while. Go sell everything. Many of us tend to focus on that and lose sight of that two, uh, the last two words which says, follow me. You see, if we do that, then I believe we are missing the point. We need to look at that two words, go, uh, three, go, three words, go sell everything together with follow me together. We need to look at it together. When we look at it together, we see that Jesus is actually giving this man an invitation or rather a call. It is a call to have a relationship with Jesus. It is a call to be with Jesus. It is a call towards discipleship. And from the text, we see that there is something that is hindering this man from answering that call. Something is hindering this man from having a close relationship with Jesus. And that one thing for this man is his wealth. Look at how he responds. At this, the man's face fell. He ran away sad because he had great wealth. You see, for this man, it was his wealth. He was very attached to his wealth. His wealth was something that he held very dear to himself. And probably his identity, you know, kind of dependent on this wealth. Because we find, you know, this same story is also narrated in the Gospel of Luke. The same story is also found in the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, this man is described as a ruler. So he's not just rich, but he's also a ruler. And he has this unhealthy attachment towards his wealth. And it was this attachment that he needed to detach himself from so that he could be attached to Jesus. 
In the same way, my dear friends, we may have attachments in our lives which are not really life-giving. Attachments which seemed harmless at first sight, but if we leave it unchecked, it may distract us from our walk with God. So what are some of the attachments that we need to check in our lives? What are some of the attachments that are hindering us from having to answer God's call towards discipleship? You see, for some of us, it may be entertainment, or perhaps the internet, or perhaps our smartphones, or for some of us, it can be our certain friendships that we have, or certain relationships that we have. You see, a fully surrendered life demands, and I use the word demand, it's a very strong word, because it is, a fully surrendered life demands that we detach ourselves from the love of our lives. For this man in our passage, the love of his life was his wealth. Now, not all of us here are attached to wealth. How to be attached if we don't have money to begin with? Right? I don't think, you know, we don't have money, nah, nah, empty pocket, right? How to be attached to wealth. But for this man, for this man in this passage, it was. But what about us? What are we attached to? You see, A.W. Tozer wrote this book. Can you see the picture? He wrote the book, uh, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer. And in that book, he gives an amazing insight into a story, into the story of Abraham and Isaac, which we find in the Old Testament. You remember the story, Abraham and Isaac? He concludes, uh, Tozer concludes that Abraham's love for Isaac was so great that Isaac became an idol to Abraham. So much so, he says, you know, Tozer says that God had to step in to break that unhealthy relationship. And how did he do that? And so Tozer goes on in this book, he goes on to explain his insight. He says, as we all know from scripture that Abraham was old when Isaac was born, correct? In fact, he was old enough to even be his grandfather. And scripture tells us that Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And so when the child was born, he became at once the delight and idol of Abraham's heart. And each day, Abraham's affection towards his son grew stronger and stronger. But we cannot really fault Abraham, right? We cannot really fault him because the child represented everything sacred to his heart. Isaac represented the promise of God. He represented the covenant and he represented the hope and future of the nation Israel. So as Abraham watched his son grow, you know, from a baby to a young man, 
his heart was needed closer and closer to his son. And that's when God suddenly says to him, take your son, your only son, it's like he's rubbing the salt, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, rub some salt, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. And one would wonder, where did that come from? Wait a minute. Isaac was a promise from God. He was and is a gift from God. And now God is asking Abraham to sacrifice him. What kind of a test is this? One would think. But the text, you know, I mean, Scripture tells us, you know, that Abraham, you know, he obeyed God's command and he went ahead to make arrangements to sacrifice his own son. He went on to prepare the wood, the fire, and the knife. You know, and the text, this, you know, the text does not give us the, any details of what Abraham might be going through in his mind or in his heart. But if we put ourselves in the shoes of Abraham, what do you think will be going through in your mind? In my mind, I put ourselves in, in our mind and in our hearts. What do you think will be going going through? What are some of the questions that you would be asking God in this situation? You probably ask why. Here, Abraham is asked to detach himself from a person, his son, whom he holds dear to his life. The rich man in today's passage was asked to detach himself from his wealth and possessions, which he held dear to his life. Now, can these two persons detach themselves from their attachment and surrender themselves to God? Looking at Abraham, we know that he did not. He obeyed God. We also know that God intervened in a remarkable way and in the right timing. He's, you know, if you can just imagine, you know, the moment Abraham took, reached out his hand and took the knife and he was about to slay his son, it was at that moment when the angel of the Lord called out to him and stopped him. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Tozer says, Tozer says that God never intended to harm Isaac. God wanted to remove Isaac from the temple of Abraham's heart so that God might reign again supremely in his heart. As we come to think about it, right, there is so much truth, right, in what Tosa says. Sometimes the things that we cherish, the people whom we love, the comfortable environment that we work and live in, the dreams and desires that we carry, the ambitions that we want to pursue, all this can slowly push God out of the center of our hearts. And the danger is that we may not even be aware of it. You know, friends, it's important that I say this because we must, we must know that God is not against wealth. He's not, all right? He's not against our dreams. He's definitely not against our ambitions. Our wealth, 
our friendships, our dreams, our visions, our ambitions are God's gift to us. And God's gift should be received in thanksgiving. It should never take the place of the giver. It should be received as God's it should be received as God's gift with thanksgiving, and it should never take the place of God. The third and the last and final thing that I would like to share is, is this. A fully surrendered life is not possible without the grace of God. A fully surrendered life is not possible without the grace of God. You see, the call to discipleship is such a tall order that sometimes we can't help but to ask ourselves, Can is it possible? You know, this man in today's story, this rich man, you know, he struggled and he walked away. To him, cannot walked away. And Jesus uses this illustration of a camel, of a camel going through the eye of the needle. Can I? Can a camel go through the eye of the needle? Can or not? You know, and he says, also he continues to, to say this, you know, the disciples in verse 24 the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier, well, Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's easier. But we all know that it's impossible. How can a camel go through the eye of the needle to begin with? To our human understanding, it is impossible. And exactly that's the point. Just like in our human understanding, to surrender absolutely is impossible. It's impossible. But with God, it is possible. That's why it says in Luke 27, I mean, Luke, Mark, Mark 10, 27, it says, Jesus looked at them and said, with men this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Friends, the call to surrender, the call to follow Jesus and to be with Jesus is not an easy call. It is a call that demands our all. And for us, for, for each one of us here, we have different things that holds us back. The very thing that I struggle to detach is different from the thing that you struggle to detach because we are, we are made different, Right? But that is not the point. The point is, we all struggle. However, we need to know that we don't struggle with it alone. We may think that it is impossible. I have tried and I still cannot. But with men, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so friends, let us just, let us take the first step by agreeing to surrender, can agree, agreeing in our heart, agreeing to surrender in our hearts, you know, and, 
and I plead with all of us, you know, that we do not walk away just like how this man in today's passage walked away. Let us agree, first, first step, agree to follow Jesus. Let us agree to be with him no matter what it would cost us, no matter how uncomfortable it might be. And after which we ask God for his grace to be able to fully surrender every area of our lives. You know, I've, I've chosen, I've, in conclusion, right, I've chosen this song, I Surrender All. It's a hymn that we will be singing uh, as closing. You know, this hymn, right, speaks about complete surrender because there's this stanzas that says, you know, all to Jesus I freely give. It speak, you know, it also speaks about forsaking worldly pleasures. It speaks about being filled with the Holy Spirit and to be empowered by Jesus. So it's not just, you know, we give, you know, not just we surrender, but we ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit. We ask God to empower us by Jesus. And when we sing this song, this hymn, right, let us sing prayerfully. You know, in whatever areas in your life that you might be struggling to surrender at this point of time, I don't know what that might be, but God knows, and you know. And as we sing this hymn, let us sing prayerfully to God. Shall we all rise as we sing this hymn?